So please take your Bible and go to the Gospel of John. We're going deep into the farewell discourse this morning. And the overall tone of Jesus' final words to his disciples in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17 is a tone of comfort and encouragement because he's trying to prepare his disciples for life in him and apart from him. In verse 18 of chapter 14, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. In other words, Jesus makes a promise that he is not going to abandon them. And the way he's going to fulfill that promise in that same immediate context is by sending another paraclete or another comforter who will be with the disciples permanently in place of Jesus. Now, next week, I want to spend some time looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But for this morning, I'd like to understand how the the chapters 13 through 17 fit together and focus in on one other area that is primary in this section. Just as a refresher, the purpose statement of John is found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where we read, Therefore, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When we talked about the Gospel of John back in the fall as an introductory message, I said that this Gospel divides into two purposes. From this little paragraph, we can glean two specific foci. One is that Christology is a focus here. The second is discipleship, so we can understand this gospel through the lens of Christological discipleship. In other words, from the terms of Son of God, Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, that's what that means, we can see Christology being developed. And of course, you see that from the very beginning, from the Logos that we talked about last week, until the very end, when Jesus expects his disciples to follow him. And that takes us into the second focus, and that is discipleship. Jesus becomes this paradigmatic follower of God, the Father, he comes, as he comes to this world to fulfill his mission. And the final prayer in John 17, he does say, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. In the purpose statement, we read, in return for believing that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, you will have life in his name. That's the promise. And then in John 17, 3, he defines eternal life as the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent. So now we know that eternal life is all about our relationship with God here and now. I think I mentioned this last week, that eternal life in the New Testament has a different meaning in different books. So in John, it's all about the present tense. It's all about today, you and I have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in the writings of Paul, eternal life is a concept that focuses on living forever. John talks about resurrection as that phase of eternal life, living forever. So you want to make sure that you understand the distinction. And just to give you one verse, in case I missed it last week, it's John 6, 54, where Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, present tense, eternal life, and I will future tense, raise him up on the last day. There's that division in John's mindset that eternal life is today. It's not something that's going to be given to you in the future. Resurrection is what awaits you in the future. 
So Jesus comes into this world to offer eternal life to people. And if you go to John 1, verse 11, it tells us who his audience is. In John 1, 11, it says that he came to his own. That's a reference to ethnic Israel. In the Synoptic Gospels, the reference is the sheep of Israel. I have come to the sheep of Israel. That's how Jesus defines his primary audience. But we see in verses 12 and 13... And continuing 11 and then 12 and 13, that not everyone received him. So he came to his own, but those who were his own, ethnic Israel, did not receive him. But some did, verse 12, and to these he gave the right to become children of God. Now, as you fast forward to chapter 13, in verse 1, the beginning of the Pharaoh discourse, here, this is how John begins this section. Now, before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, if you've read the gospel up to this point, you would have recognized that this idea, the hour, has been repeated multiple times. And every single time until chapter 12, it said the hour had not come. There was this premature anticipation of that hour. And sometimes people wanted to prematurely grab him in chapter 6, for example, and make him a king. But the hour hadn't come yet. So, the hour has come, in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own. Now, you're repeating the same phrase that we saw in one eleven. And these who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is now zooming in into a subset of this, his own category. Ethnic Israel was the first target of Jesus' ministry, and they rejected him, verse 11 tells us. Many of them did. But then there's a subset, a select group that did receive him. We met them in in verse 12 of chapter 1. And now these are the ones who received him. So now we see that there is a pivot that takes place in this gospel. We're going from the public ministry of Jesus to the private ministry of Jesus. That's how we know there's a division. Now, one other way that we know there's a change is back in chapter 12, verse 36. This is the ending of the public ministry of Jesus. And it says in the middle of the verse, these things Jesus spoke, so everything in the first 12 chapters. And he went away and hid himself from them. The public ministry of Jesus is closed. And the way we can divide this gospel is, there we go, that threefold division. Now, the last part, you can divide in half, either 13 through 21 or 13 through 17, 18 through 21. You can go either way depending on how specific you'd like to be. But the main point is that what we're going to talk about today and next week is reserved for his followers. Now, the world is mentioned as hostile to those who follow Christ, but the Promises that are given, all the blessings that are mentioned in chapters 13 through 17 are restricted to those who are his own, this select group. And I mentioned this last week at the Shepherds Conference in a seminar, that if you were to link the general his own category with the subset category, you need to see that link in chapter 12, verses 37 through 42. Because interestingly enough, the way John moves us theologically... From the main category to the remnant category, the select his own, is through a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. We know this because that's the commissioning of Isaiah when God cleanses his lips with a coal from an altar. 
Remember that? And then it says, someone needs to go and preach. And who will go for us is the question. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And this is what is written after that. Verse 39, or verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. That's the reference to those individuals to whom Isaiah will preach. And they won't believe, they won't listen, they won't understand. Because God has supernaturally hardened their heart from the message of repentance. John's explanation why people refuse to believe and confess Jesus as Messiah is theological because he's not focusing on the remnant. We know that even though the word remnant isn't used because this is the remnant passage from Isaiah 6 where the remnant is used as a term. So this is the idea that was preached about by everybody, 40 messages last week. But you see how John uniquely takes that and shifts us to the select group of individuals. He also does this by the choosing language. So in verse 16 of chapter 15, Jesus now in the middle of the farewell discourse tells his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. That's pretty clear. I'm the one who brought you into this select group of his own. In verse 19 of the same chapters, you were in the world, but I chose you out of the world in the middle of the verse. In chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus says, I myself chose you. In chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus says, I know the ones I have chosen. So the choice language keeps coming up before the farewell discourse and in the farewell discourse to remind the disciples that this is a select group of people that are uniquely privileged by God's sovereign choice. You can read about that in chapter 6. To be brought into a special relationship with Jesus Christ. Contrast that with 1026. You are not my sheep. Again, a very divine, sovereign statement. It is to his own, the chosen ones, the elect, the ones who have been covered with the blood of Christ, through the sacrificial death of Christ, that are receiving chapters 13 through 17. Paul's way of saying the same thing is in Romans 9, 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So have that mindset as you get into the farewell discourse. So as we move, the focus is on the remnant. So the curtain falls in 1250. Jesus' final words are, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And eternal life as an offer to the masses has now ceased. The offer of the message that has been proclaimed in for 12 chapters. And as the curtain falls and reopens, it's a brand new act. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the crowds that are pressing in on him, those who are debating him, who are trying to grab him and arrest him and kill him, all of those actors are off the stage. As the curtain lifts, you have only the scene of 12 individuals and Jesus. And for the next section, 13 through 17, the focus is on them. Just before the hour 
of, and the power of darkness is activated according to Luke 22, that's what's going to happen in chapter 18. 18 and 19 is all about the hour and the power of darkness. And just grab the sense of that statement. All of hell, all the power that Satan had, all the demons, he's now decided to focus them into Gethsemane. And we know that by trying to derail the plan of salvation, by killing Christ, thinking there would be the end of God's plan. And so Jesus, before that happens, meets with his disciples and confesses. He loved his own. He loved them to the end. Everything that you will read in chapters 13 through 17 doesn't exist anywhere else in the Gospels. Just here. This is unique to John. It's part of that 92% of the gospel that is distinct from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the way John frames these chapters is with the theme of love. Love is mentioned in chapter 13, verse 1. Love is mentioned in the very last verse of chapter 17. That's called an inclusio. It's the way ancient writers wrote trying to emphasize something. And in chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus says, I've made your name known to them, and they will, and will make it known to them, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So in 13.1, he says, the love that was extended to the disciples is perfect. He loved them to the end. And I think the meaning, meaning here is qualitative and quantitative. In other words, it's the perfect love, and it's love that goes into continuity and perpetuity. And then in chapter 17, verse 26, he says that kind of love is on par with the love that the Father has for the Son. I don't think we'll ever understand what that means. But that's what it says. And so John is trying to frame this entire section with love. 70% of the references to love in the whole gospel are in the farewell discourse. You want to know what the main theme is? Love. Thank you. Three of you got it. Love. 31 times it's mentioned in these few chapters. And the way it's expressed in verse 33 of chapter 13, Jesus calls them little children. A term of endearment. A few verses later, he says, you are to love one another as he loved them. In chapter 14, verse 15, he says, The proof, proof of your love for me is your obedience to me, because my proof for, God, for my love for God, in chapter 15, verses 8 through 10, is my obedience to him. In chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says that he leads his people to obey him, and then God, in response, loves them. And then in fifteen thirteen, the greatest expression of love is to sacrifice your love for another and then as i just mentioned briefly but you can go back to 17 and look at 23 24 and 26 the final words of that prayer i and them you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and i and you love them even as you loved me father i desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where i am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world and we read verse 26 so you now have to understand that if the love that jesus is referring to is on the same level as god's love for him and that love is verse 24 eternal 
That means God's love for us is also eternal. Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Do you see how Paul and John align? The love that's extended to the disciples of Jesus is of eternal proportions. And that kind of love is described in John 3.35 as the father loving the son has given all things into his hand. In 5.20, the father loves the son and shows him everything that he's doing. In chapter 15, Jesus will say, I've told you everything that I have learned from the father. In chapter In Romans 8, if you want to go outside of John a little bit, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for our soul. Will he not freely give us all things? In chapter 8, verse 39, Paul says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In chapter 5, verse 19 of Ephesians, that love surpasses knowledge. And then Psalm 23, verse 6, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will abide in the house of the Lord forever. Those are just a few select passages focusing on God's love for his people, channeled through Christ. So when you read 13.1, he loved his own, loving them to the end. You have to have these passages in your mind to define that love. And make sure you don't just run over them, but stop and contemplate what does it mean for the father to love us just as he loved his son. And I think that's going to be an eternal investigation for all of us. But in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, we see why Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. He says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So in Psalm 23, verse 6, David writes that God's love will accompany us or chase us more literally all the way into the father's house. Jesus picks up that language and says, the love that I've expressed to you that is perfect from 13.1 is a love that is preparing a dwelling place for you in my father's house. It's a love that doesn't give up. It's a love of commitment, of zeal, of pursuit. A love that's initially expressed in the farewell discourse by Jesus humiliating himself as he washes his disciples' feet. And the primary point of that is in verse 8 of chapter 13. When Peter comes to him and says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. That's the main point. Is that this is a symbol of participation in Christ. That relationship with Christ demands purification. It demands a washing. And so Jesus says back to him, Well, Peter says back to him, fine, then wash all of me, 
Because I want to have that kind of a relationship with you. Not just my feet, everything. In other words, Peter was all in. And Jesus says, well, hold on, my towel is too small for that purpose. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. So now he understands that there is Judas in the room. That's how we know he's in the room. That's how we know Jesus washed his feet. Can you imagine what's happening in Jesus' mind? Back in chapter 12, the description about Jesus' anticipation of the cross is, is described with the terminology of an earthquake. Jesus' soul is having an earthquake. That's the Greek language that's used there. He is distraught, and we know that through the prayers in Gethsemane, just go and read the ending of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How distraught he was, it says that he was sweating blood. And an angel had to come from heaven to sustain him because he was that distraught. That's his emotional state. Jesus was human. Do not dehumanize Jesus. And in that state, he bows before Judas and washes his feet. As if to give him one last chance to not go through with it. But the main point is that it's a symbol of being cleansed by Jesus. Of course, it's the cleansing through the sacrificial blood of Christ that's expected here. But it's also this ongoing cleansing. And this is Jesus humiliating himself because typically when the room was rented back in the day, it would come with a servant who would be the host. He would serve the food, he would wash the feet and so on. For whatever reason, that individual wasn't available. And so Jesus ends up taking the role of that person and being the host and being the servant to wash their feet. There's not a single illustration in all of ancient literature where a superior washed the feet of an inferior. That's exactly what's happening in this chapter. And ultimately, Jesus' great expression of his love will be in chapter 15, verse 13, by offering his life for them. And that is the greatest expression of his life and his love. So as we move through this discourse, the first example of his love is that he washes their feet. Then ultimately he dies for them later and predicts that in chapter 15. But what happens here as we understand his love, there's a connection between love and another term. Look at 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So Jesus is now pairing the love theme with the abiding theme. That is another main theme in this gospel, appearing 40 times as a verb and twice as a noun. All over the place, but especially featured in the farewell discourse. And so what Jesus is trying to do is to help them understand that in order for you to experience my love regularly, daily, you have to obey me, 
but you also have to abide in me. And this is what happens. Go back to chapter 14. Verse 20 says this, in that day, that's the day of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. You will know that I'm in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So now, you will understand when the Spirit comes, that there's a unique relationship between the Father and the Son, and who else? Us. You. The select. So now he's explaining what it means to be in a special, unique relationship with two of the three members of the Trinity. What does that look like? Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me and will keep my word, and my Father will love him. So there's that condition. You have to love. You have to obey. The Father then loves. And we will come to him and make our abiding place with him. So now love is a condition for abiding. You see that? That God will abide when we love and express that through obedience. So it's a circular presentation. So we have the Father and the Son promising to be with us in a unique abiding relationship. As in verse 20, the Father and the Son have that relationship. But look back to verse 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he, what? Abides in you or with you and will be in you. So each member of the Trinity is set apart from the other in an abiding relationship with us. Now we'll talk about all that, how everything works out next week. So come back, please. But for now, I want to make sure you don't miss this, that love and abiding are paired in the Gospel of John. You need both of them to experience both of them on a daily basis. That is a distinctive mark of Johannine theology. You won't find anything about abiding in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not because they didn't believe it, but because they didn't want to feature it and focus on it the way John does. As he tries to explain to us what it means to be with Christ or in Christ when he's not next to you. Remember how chapter 14 started. Do not let your heart be troubled. Whose heart should be troubled? Jesus says. It is troubled from chapter 12. But Jesus is so selfless that he says, I'm aware of your concerns. Of the trauma that you are experiencing. Of the tribulation that is in your heart. But don't let it Don't be troubled. You believe in God? Command. Believe also in me. Because here's what Jesus does. In order to encourage them, get this. In order to encourage them away from sorrow, he takes them to the very end of the story. To the end of the Christian journey. He says, let me show you how this all ends. In my father's house. Because chapter 15 15 will tell them, you will be persecuted. Chapter 16, you will be executed. You'll be expelled from synagogues. You will be troubled in this world. In this world, you will have trouble. That's in chapter 16. But as you go through all that, 
This is where it ends. That's a big spoiler, right? You don't want to see the ending of a movie at the beginning. Some movies do that, but then they kind of go back. Jesus does that. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you may be with me forever. And so for the next few minutes, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to show you one of the three aspects of what it means to abide with Christ. There's three of them. There's the eschatological aspect of abiding with Christ. That is here in the first three verses of chapter 14. In other words, we will abide with him forever in his father's house. The second aspect is the present tense reality. I've mentioned it a few times already, and we'll develop that next week. That is the Father and the Son and the Spirit abiding with the believers today, here and now. And the third aspect of abiding in the Gospel of John is a conditional component to it. In chapter 15, the the vine and the branches pericope is all about if you abide, then. There's a condition that's expected. So there's those three components to abiding, the eschatological, the present tense, and the condition that is placed upon every single believer if they are to experience the love of God that we just described and that intimate relationship that ultimately leads us in chapter 15, we read this, so that we would have his quality of joy in us to the max. So zooming out a little bit. Abiding in the Bible reflects the presence of God with his people. If you go all the way back to the beginning, God demonstrated that he was with his people through the tabernacle. The beginning, right? At the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, God fills the temple. Verse 34, there's a specific verse for that even though there's a whole section on it. But in verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is God coming into a tabernacle and then as the tabernacle moves with the people of God all the way until the temple is built and dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8. That's a lot of years, hundreds of years pass as the people of God move into that phase of the temple from 1446 when the exodus begins until 930 when Solomon starts his reign 970 is when he starts his reign in that time period the temple is built that's over 400 years God is demonstrating his presence through the tabernacle now we also know that as they wander before the tabernacle is built there was the pillar of cloud the pillar of fire All that is also symbolizing the presence of God with his people. So the temple ultimately ends up functioning as the locus of God's presence in Israel. So then when you open up the gospel of John, John wants to make sure the people who are reading this gospel don't forget that. And that's why in John 1.14, when he talks about the incarnation of the Logos, He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it tabernacled with us. He wants to take the reader back to Exodus and say, just as God tabernacled with his people in the tabernacle, now Jesus is fulfilling that same function. In chapter 2, Jesus would say, destroy this temple 
again, alluding back to the idea that God is with his people through the temple. But you don't need the temple anymore because Christ is here and he is the one who mediates God's presence with his people. So that's the background to the abiding language in the Gospel of John. The Old Testament images of God's being present with his people. And now as we get into chapter 14, we see Jesus promising that he will make sure that his people are always with him. And the full tenor of these few verses is that there is a journey that's taken place. I will go. I will come back. There's a place where I'm going. The way I'm going to my father. All the language here in those few verses is about movement. Movement away from here and somewhere else. The father's house. Jesus says that again in verse 12, I'm going to my father's house. So the language here is all about a journey, a transfer, a transition. And what you have to understand is that in ancient Jewish literature, around the time of the Gospel of John, other Jewish writers, theologians, philosophers, understood my father's house, that phrase, as a reference to heaven. The reason I say that is because there are many scholars out there today who look at the Gospel of John and say there is no eschatology in the Gospel of John. There is no second coming. There is no rapture. There is no heaven. All those promises that you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the writings of Paul, which preceded the Gospel of John, by the way, all of those are now being realized in Jesus and fulfilled, and there is no future. What I'd like to make sure you understand, if you ever read a book that says that, that's not true if you read carefully. Because all the language here, again, in the first few verses is, there is movement to my father's house. The Jewish writers like Philo, if you ever heard that word before, Philo, that's a man who was a contemporary in the first century. He was a writer, a Jewish theologian. He wasn't a Christian, but he wrote about Jewish theology. And he writes about this future eschatological existence with God. There's also a book called First Maccabees. It was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It recounts for us the history of what takes place between Malachi and Matthew. First and Second Maccabees, there's four, five of them. Four focus on that time period. And so in one of those chapters, chapter 7, verse 38, it talks about this abiding place that we just read about in chapter 14, verse 2. I'm going to my father's house where there are dwelling places or abiding places. It's the same vocabulary. Now, that is a rare word. So rare that there's only two places in the full entire New Testament where that word appears. The noun of the word abide. Chapter 14, verse 2, and chapter 14, verse 23. We'll talk about 14.23 next week. 14.2 is what we're talking about now. 14.2 is this abiding place that's in heaven. It's in the future. We're waiting for it. But there's another writing called the book of First Enoch. I know I'm not supposed to read non-canonical, non-inspired works on this campus. I get it. Please turn off the recording for this period. Don't tell MacArthur. But I think it's interesting to see what other people around the same time wrote about this idea. So follow along because it is a little bit extended, extensive. So it says this. There I saw 
other dwelling places of the holy ones and their resting places too. So there my eyes saw their dwelling places with the holy angels and their resting places with the holy ones. And they interceded and petitioned and prayed on behalf of the children of the people. And righteousness flowed before them like water and mercy like dew upon the earth. And thus it is in their midst forever and ever. And in those days, my eyes saw the elect one of righteousness and of faith. And righteousness shall prevail in his days. And the righteous and elect ones shall be without number before him forever and ever. And I saw a dwelling place underneath the wings of the Lord of the spirits. And all the righteous and the elect before him shall be as intense as the light of fire. Their mouth shall be full of blessing and their lips will praise the name of the Lord of the spirits. And righteousness before him will have no end. And uprightness before him will not cease. There, underneath his wings, I wanted to dwell. And my soul desired that dwelling place. Already my portion is there, for thus has it been reserved for me before the Lord of the spirits. That's not in the Bible. Peter knew about it. He talks about it in 2 Peter. Jude knew about it as well. He writes about it. But here, in this non-canonical, non-inspired text... We have a similar idea, this longing to be in the presence of God with the angels where righteousness dwells. That's what John is also writing about, that ultimately our journey, even as Logan said, life is difficult. It's filled with trials and tribulations. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that. He's preparing us for that through this text, but the journey will end and all that sorrow will cease and Jesus is trying to remember, remind them of this future reality. But this isn't the only place where Jesus makes this promise. Back in chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Again, a future promise to be with Christ. And in that place, if anyone serves me, the Father will, be, will honor him. In chapter 13, verse 36, Simon says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Again, another promise of the future place with Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to your father but through me. That means he leads us into that place. And of course, I already read chapter 17, verse 24, where Jesus says, I desire that they whom you have given me be with me where I am to see my glory. So there's this repeated promise focused more intently and intensely in John 14 of a future abiding with Christ. You have to understand the uniqueness of this language in the New Testament to the Gospel of John, the abiding language that comes with our future experience. Why would John do this? Why would he make such a big deal about this abiding? The tabernacle, the temple, the glory of God, the cloud, the fire, pillar, all that. It's all in there. We know it from the Old Testament. Why does he make a big deal about it in the Gospel of John? I think it's an answer to this longing that people had, as we just read in Enoch, to be with God. Just think back to Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. It's an expression of the psalmist to want to be with God because that is where true delight is. 
Psalm 21, verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. 42, verse 2 of the Psalms, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When will I see the face of God? So you have to understand that this is the cry of the faithful in the Old Testament. I can't wait to get into the presence of God. Millennia after millennia, these are the pilgrims that are described in Hebrews chapter 11. They are forsaking this world, the pleasures of this world like Moses did, in order to be with the people of God and to be in the presence of God. Hebrews eleven fourteen says they're seeking a heavenly city whose builder and designer is God. We fall into that category. We are strangers and exiles, right? That's what Peter calls us in 1 Peter 1. And so through all of these detours in life and the turmoil that we have to experience and the hostility and the death, all this entire pilgrimage ultimately ends in God's presence. That is how John is capturing our attention to faithfully follow Christ. Remember, Christology and discipleship. The point, the application of this all is follow Christ. You'll be honored. You'll be glorified. You'll be with me even if it takes a lot of painful days to do so, days filled with persecution. And John knows what it's like to be in the presence of the glorified Savior because the transfiguration gave him a preview of that. Remember that? James, Peter, and John were there of the 12. And Peter's response to that episode is, Jesus, let's make three tabernacles. Now, at least he was humble enough to put Moses, Elijah, and Jesus inside during the rain, and they'd stay outside. But he says, I love this. I think John felt the same way. I never want to leave this place to be in the presence of the glorified Christ. That's why for John, this isn't just theory. He had a very tiny preview of this back in Matthew 17. And so now he says, this is what's awaiting us as believers. But it's all attached to this Theological idea of abiding. And John, shortly before he dies, in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, he says, this is what I'm talking about, to give you a little bit more specifics. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready for a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God. Remember abiding language? The abiding place of God is among men and he will abide with them and they will be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no longer any death. There'll be no longer any mourning or crying or pain All of these things, the first things that have to do with this cursed world have passed away. Verse 5, all things are new. That's the final phase of our abiding. But before we get there, we have to go back to the present. And we're going to do it next week. What does it look like to abide with the Father and the Son and the Spirit every single day? until we get that to that place. Lord God, we're so grateful that you uniquely, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you revealed to John in Revelation, in the Gospel of John, this future reality for all of your children. 
thank you for reminding us that it's worth it to have tribulation, to endure persecution, to be uncomfortable in this life because of what awaits us. And I do pray for all of us here that we would faithfully follow Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, seeing him as our Messiah and seeing him as our King. We pray this to the honor of his name. Amen.